If you would uh, stand up with me as we read Colossians chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are all are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. Uh, Father, um, thankful, thank you for whether or not we are in a good frame of mind or a bad frame of mind or a good frame of heart or a bad frame of heart, whether we're in the valley or we're on the mountaintop, we're in riches or we're in poverty, we're thankful that our faith, our trust, our assurance does not rest on those things, but rather it rests upon Christ Jesus himself, who is, uh, as, the, as uh, chapter 1 19 says, the fullness of God dwells in him. He's pleased to dwell in him. We pray that you would turn our eyes upon Christ today, that we would see that fullness, that we would catch a glimpse of your glory in his face, and that you would transform our lives, Lord, to be more like him, uh, to be more obedient to him. Again, Lord, just remind us today that our righteousness is in heaven, seated at the right hand of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a guy named John Acton, Um, he was called Lord Acton, Uh, he coined the the phrase that is repeated often, though we leave leave one word out. He said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and then he goes on to say, great men are almost always bad men, and this may be true of every man and woman after the fall of Adam and Eve. But I think it kind of puts the cart before the horse. Perhaps it may be better to say the corrupt tend to abuse power and the absolutely corrupt abuse it absolutely. Power, wealth, and riches have always been viewed with suspicion um, by people. Um, And it's always been viewed with suspicion from the heart of every skeptic, which is near everyone these days. Lord Acton may be right in a temporary assessment of the world, but eternally he's wrong because we know the Bible teaches that God is all-powerful and yet God is the opposite of corrupt. So power can't corrupt since God has all power. He's holy, he's good, he's just, he's righteous in every way a person can conceive. God is rich, he's wealthy and powerful in every meaningful way we could discuss. Colossians really is about the fullness of God, the fullness of the riches of wisdom and knowledge and understanding that are found in him, the fullness of his power and his glory. We look for this fullness in many places because we're created for it. Uh, We look for it in the President of the United States. We look for it in the Senate, in the House. We look for it in the historical saints, right? The people who have died have gone before us that we read their books. We look for it in our friends, in our family. We look for it in our movies and our books. Longing for a story to satisfy our longing for this fullness, this power, this wealth, 
for God himself. The church father uh, from Carthage, Augustine, wrote this. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. Talking to God. The author of Ecclesiastes puts it this way. He, God, has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Restless, not sitting still, always searching on the phone, always looking for something to fill our time with, with meaning and purpose. Some turn to religions to scratch this eternal itch. Perhaps becoming nothing will mean something, says the Buddhist, right? Perhaps serving Allah in duty and honor and strict obedience will settle me. Perhaps adapting and adding every splotch of culture and deity to my shelf as a Hindu will fix it. Perhaps the comfort and certainty that comes from the scientific method will satisfy us. Maybe different theories of material, material wealth will bring us comfort. Maybe it's minimalism. That's the thing today. Uh, getting rid of materialism in my life, rather than hoarding what I can touch, I hoard experiences that I can gain, right? Um, maybe it's companionship with others, or marriage, or sex that we turn to for meaning. But nonetheless, we demonstrate by our constant searching that we have an everlasting hunger that no fullness made from man fulfill. Even Solomon recognizes this at the peak of the golden age, when the temple of God is built and he's giving his prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8.27, he starts off by saying this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Power corrupts. Fullness corrupts. Riches corrupt. And yet, it is the one who is all rich and full in the fullness of life and the most powerful whom we're designed for, and whom we need. All this hunger only highlights our problem, but gets us really no closer to the solution other than saying, hey, we got a problem. C.S. Lewis says it a little more positively. He says this, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And yet here we are, in this world. This world, with otherworldly desires, we cannot reach. For, God, for again, we can say with Solomon, will God ind- indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. Or as Isaiah 6 says, the train of his robe filled the temple. Just the edge of his cloak filled the entire temple. The temple couldn't even contain the edge of his cloak. Created for a fullness we cannot obtain, Created for a fullness um, that we can't contain. This is our dilemma. And yet there's good news. Our text is all about this. In fact, the letter of Colossians gives the answer to this dilemma that every person with a heart feels. In fact, fullness, riches, power, these are the things Paul seeks to write about to the Colossians. Two examples, chapter 119. For in him, this is in the Christ hymn, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And a little bit later in chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus Christ, God's mystery, revealed to us in God's word through the proclamation of God's people. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ bodily. Completely, 100% contained in the person of Jesus Christ. All of who God is. 
the earth, the heavens, the highest heavens, the temples, the tabernacles, all the things we talked about cannot contain the fullness of God. And yet imagine with me for a second, Augustus Caesar sitting on his throne with his little pen, scratching out a little decree to to call for taxes that will basically move the nations back to their homelands. All the nations move at the scratch of his pen. And yet there's this little baby that's born in this town of Bethlehem in an animal's food trough, a child in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and to dwell bodily. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And here in the face of Christ, we see the fullness of the Father, the fullness of his riches, the fullness of his wisdom, the fullness of his glory. More so, here on the mouth of Christ, we find him uttering our name and ushering us into his kingdom as sons and daughters of the Most High. And even more so, we find that he unites us to himself and he dwells in us, the fullness of God dwelling in us through Jesus Christ. We should sing the Christ hymn. We should repeat it again. At the top of our lungs, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Peace, rest, stillness brought to us by the blood of Christ's cross. And it is precisely here where the treasures in the fullness of God can be spoken of as hidden, as in our text in verse 3. It is here in the birth of Christ in a feeding trough, here in the death of Christ, naked and shamefully nailed to a cursed tree. It is here where the all-powerful God demonstrates himself as also the all-humble God. John Calvin writes it this way about the treasures of Christ. He says, Paul says, however, that the treasures are hidden because they are not seen glittering with great splendor, but do rather, as it were, lie hid under the contemptible abasement and simplicity of the cross. Our text today is going to provide us a survey of Christ and so that other people might also see him in their lives. Um, it, it's a chiasm. The, the, the pattern of the text is a chiasm, which is just a fancy way of saying it's like a mountain. Point one is down here, point two, and then point three is the mountaintop, and then it goes back down, point four, point five, and they correlate with each other. So verses one through five are about Paul's audience. Verses 2 through 4, or 2 and 4, are the responses he hopes from his audience. And the pinnacle of the text is found at the end of 2 and all of verse 3, which is Christ, the mystery of God, and the fullness that can be found in him. And so we're going to look at these things. Our first point, uh, we're going to go point by point, each verse. Our first point is we must struggle on behalf of the church. And this is found in verse 1. We must struggle... On behalf of the church, Paul writes this in chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. 
he wants to remind his audience of the struggle he has for a couple reasons. Uh, first, it communicates he deeply loves them, right? You don't struggle for people, generally speaking, that you don't deeply love. Uh, but the second thing is he's providing an example that he wants them to follow. He struggles for them and their joy in Christ, and they should struggle for each other and their joy in Christ, and they should struggle for Paul and his joy in Christ. He mentions three groups of people in this verse. He mentions the Colossians, the Laodiceans, and then other people whom he says he has not met him face to face. We don't know who these other people are. It could be anyone who may at one point in time stumble on this letter. It could refer to other churches he hasn't visited. Um, It could be like Romans, Romans 16. One of the most challenging things from Romans uh, is not the, the theological castles that can be built all throughout the text, but flip over to Romans 16 at some point in time to, during the week and look at Paul's greetings. He lists off about 30 to 40 names of people in a church he has never visited. That's a challenging thing right there. He's praying and he's sending greetings to people in a church he's never visited. That's how much he struggles for the church of Jesus Christ. So it's a long list of names. On top of that, he writes Romans, uh, on top of that, uh, he, he is now writing to this church, and he's not just writing to this church, he's writing to Laodicea and, and other people who he's not seen. So what about Laodicea? Why are they mentioned here? They were a partnering city with Colossae, and so likely the churches themselves were partners in a lot of things. Maybe they did Thanksgiving um, services together on Tuesday, November 24th at 6.30 p.m., um, uh, so, uh, but there's maybe another reason here. The only place that we see Laodicea elsewhere in Scripture, besides Colossians, is Revelation chapter 3. It's one of the seven churches that Jesus writes a letter to. And uh, in it, he says, he, he kind of rebukes them, and he gives them a challenge. He, Jesus says to them, Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Right? They struggled with apathy, not being useful, um, letting their love kind of grow lukewarm for the Lord. Now, I'll just do a little quick side note here because this, this text can be abused. Um, it kind of sounds like Jesus is saying, I really want you to be on fire for me or just walk the complete opposite way. As long as you're hot or cold, that's okay with me. But lukewarm somewhere in between, like hypocrisy, I don't want you to do that. That's not at all what the text is talking about. Um, Colossae is next to Laodicea, and there's another city next to Laodicea. And Colossae is known for having cold water, and this other city is known for having hot water. And Laodicea had no access to springs, and so they had to pipe water from those two cities. And so whether it was cold or hot from its origin, by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And so the text is actually saying, Jesus is looking at the church and he's saying, I want you to be useful. I want you to be refreshing like cold water, or I want you to be, uh, you know, they used hot water for medis- uh, medicinal purposes. So perhaps Paul brings them up here to warn the Colossians to not sink into apathy, and he's also warning the Laodiceans to not sink into apathy. Take some of that cold water, right, and splash it on your face. What about the word struggle? This is really where we're getting our point, number one, from, that we should struggle for the church. It's a word used of the the Roman gladiator games and competitions. It's like struggle. Um, It's a fighting word. It's a contending word. 
Uh, but how do we practically struggle uh, for the church? What exactly does Paul mean when he says he's struggling? Uh, Pastor John covered this a little bit last week. Um, and, you know, it, last week in chapter 1, verses 28 through 29, which say this, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may be present, uh, sorry, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So our, our kind of first practical way that we struggle, according to Paul, is that we warn everyone and we teach everyone about Christ Jesus. So we're warning them away from sin and we're teaching them about Jesus and we're calling them to follow and to submit and to obey Jesus so that we might present them mature before God. So our first kind of way to struggle, if you will, is literally we're called to warn people in sin in the church and we're called to teach people and to continue to encourage people to follow after Jesus uh, in the church so that one day we might present them mature in Christ Jesus. A second thing also comes from Colossians. This is chapter 4, verse 12. It's the only other place that struggles used in this letter. He says this, Epaphras, who's the guy who, this is the guy who planted the Colossae church and he works with Paul. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So again, second practical way of struggling is prayer. Prayer is struggling for the church. Note that these two, these two ways of struggling, uh, encouraging people slash warning people and praying for people, have one goal in mind, that those people will mature in Christ Jesus, that they will grow in Christ Jesus. And so some, some questions that we can ask ourselves. Are we struggling for our brothers and sisters at Remedy Church? Are we struggling for our neighboring churches? Are we struggling for Christians across the world? Are we struggling or are we kind of lukewarming, not a real word, lukewarming our way through our walk with Christ? So seize this promise, though, of chapter 1, verse 29. We struggle, but we struggle with this. His energy that God powerfully works within us. So we struggle, but we struggle with the energy that God himself supplies. He's faithful to give us the strength that we need to warn people and to teach people, encourage people, and to pray for people. So brothers and sisters, struggle on behalf of the church. That's our first point. Our second one is found in verse 2. So we're, we're still climbing up the mountain. We must unite together in love by the knowledge of Christ. Unite together in love by the knowledge of Christ. In verse 2, Paul writes this, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So we discussed struggling before two is really going to outline what maturity looks like. What is maturity in Christ? Uh, the flow of the verse is found in the verb encouraged. This verb is then described by another phrase, being knit together in love. So the verb is described by this idea of being knit together in love. And it has an aim, right? To reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So encouragement and unity brought by the love of God leads us to God's mystery, which is Jesus Christ 
himself. And this mystery is found in chapter 1, verse 26 as well. Paul writes, uh, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Uh, And he tells them in verse 27, The mystery is Christ in you. And then in our text, the mystery is literally Christ himself. So Jesus Christ is the mystery of God now revealed. Paul is struggling for the church so that they might be encouraged and being knit together in love, they might know Christ with an assurance and knowledge. So it's not just a mere mental knowledge that puffs up, but rather it's born from love and it builds up. Paul uses this same idea of knitted together um, in Ephesians 4. He says this. It's the same concept here, maturity in Christ. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is our head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together, or literally knitted together, by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's a, it's a, it's a precious cycle instead of a vicious cycle. Um, we struggle in prayer and an encouragement of it, a prayer for others and encouraging others so that they might grow up in Christ. And then in turn, Christ is the one that gives us that strength to do it in the first place. And then as we're growing up in Christ and being more and more mature in Christ, he's giving us more and more of himself so that we can in turn love one another and continue to build each other more and more. And it just feeds off of each other, all starting with God, sending us his fullness in Jesus Christ. One further kind of observation that will lead us into our third point. The word in verse 2, the words all and full, are found here, and it echoes two other verses in Colossians. Uh, Fullness is a theme that's repeated over and over and over. So full, all, is used a lot throughout Colossians. But we already talked about this in 119. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then this text is also foreshadowing chapter 2, verse 9. All the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So here, Paul is already foreshadowing those things. The fullness of God which dwells in Christ is accessible and it's offered to us freely. Paul's aim is that we might be brought into that fullness found in Christ, in Christ alone. And this brings us to the mountaintop. Point three, Christ our treasure. And this is kind of the second 2B, so the second verse the second half of the second verse, and it's also verse 3. Paul writes this, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you may be asking, why are we talking about verse 2 again? We, didn't we just cover verse 2? There, there's more here. Um, start with this word mystery. Uh, Pastor John last week talked about this idea that mystery is not like the detective novels, right? It's not like a murder mystery where we just need to apply our reason and our logic and Sherlock our way to the the knowledge of the mystery and figure it out. It's not like that. But rather, mystery is something that we can't achieve via intellect, understanding, or reason. It's rather something that God alone can reveal to us. That's what's meant by the word mystery. Um, And so... The gospel, this is what Calvin says about it. The gospel can be understood by faith alone, not by reason. The mystery of God, I understand in a passive signification as meaning that in which God is revealed. 
Another, another guy said it this way. Uh, this is Augustine and then another guy named Anselm. They say it this way. Faith leads us to understanding, not the other way around. Understanding doesn't lead to faith. Faith leads to understanding. And that's what we're talking about here. This mystery isn't something that can be understood by applying our minds to it. It's something that has to be revealed and then trusted. And that's what then leads us into understanding it. So this word mystery can also mean something else. Uh, Commentator G.K. Beale writes this. Mystery is used in the New Testament to indicate two things. Old Testament prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled. And second, this fulfillment is unexpected from the former Old Testament vantage point. So the Old Testament is beginning to be fulfilled, but it's being fulfilled in a way that no one expected. Um, That's what mystery indicates here. And so Paul is actually quoting the Old Testament, two two different passages. Uh, The first passage is Daniel chapter 2, 19 through 22. Daniel chapter 2 uses the word mystery, wisdom, understanding, and hidden, which are all found in this text here. And it's the only two places that those combination of words are found. Uh, Daniel 2 says this, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and he said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells in them. Again, this just points us to this idea that mystery is something that has to be revealed by God. Now, the context for Daniel 2, um, King Nebuchadnezzar, it, he, he has this dream that he can't interpret, and he calls his wise men together, and he's like, all right, will you interpret the, the dream for me? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. But then he gives a little caveat. He says, I'm not going to tell you the dream either. You have, to like, you have to, like, know the dream, and you have to give the interpretation of it because I don't want you to trick me. Um, and they can't do it. And so then he's going to kill all of his wise men, which is probably wise, right? Kill all the wise men in the land. Um, and so Daniel is asked, and Daniel says, okay, give me some time. And he prays to the Lord God, and God reveals the dream to Daniel, and he reveals the interpretation, and then Daniel shares it and saves all the wise men of the land uh, for King Nebuchadnezzar. And so here's the context again. This mystery, it's hidden, and only God can reveal it. And Daniel has to approach God, and God reveals it to him. And so it goes right well into this text, right, from last week, 126 through 27. Again, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the nations or the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. God reveals Jesus to us, the mystery of God. Daniel 2 is not the only passage. Uh, the next one is Proverbs chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, which says, says this. Yes, if you call out for insight or the word for wisdom... And raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth, uh, or from his presence, come knowledge and understanding. So again, in this passage, the word understanding, knowledge, hidden, treasures, wisdom, all found in Proverbs 2 and in Colossians 2. Um, Paul's heavily alluding to this. 
And so this is the bottom line of why Paul would quote Proverbs 2, which is about the wisdom of God. G.K. Beale says this, Whereas the law, or the Torah, was the epitome, it was the climax of wisdom in the Old Testament time, wisdom. In this light, the law of Moses was the typological precursor of the fullest expression of wisdom which has come now in the person of Jesus Christ, which is just a really fancy way of saying that the law is literally a picture of the Christ who is to come. All the wisdom we find, all the delight we find in the law of God is just pointing us to ultimately the delight and the wisdom that is found in Christ to show us. And that's what he's saying there. So Proverbs 2 is quoted to show that Jesus is the fountain of wisdom. And so maybe an exercise you could do sometime this week. Take the, the Psalm 119, which is about 80 pages long. It's the longest psalm, right? Um, don't do the whole psalm. Maybe break it up into chunks or just do a part of it. But every time you see uh, the word law or any of its synonyms, right, it uses precepts, statutes, word, commandments, testimonies, law, all those, all those synonyms. The, the, the whole Psalm 119 is about the word of God, the law of God. Anytime you see the law of God, the commandments of God, think Christ Jesus and use the same language that the psalmist used in his blessing of the law, his delight in the law, his worship of God for giving the law, use that same language and just throw it to Christ. Use that and gu- let it guide your prayers. Let it guide your, uh, your struggles on behalf of the church. Uh, one, one little thing before we go to verse 4. I want to address the, the little word hidden. In Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden In what way are they hidden? The folly of the cross, or the foolishness of the cross, is the stumbling block of the ages. Paul writes this in the Corinthians, to the Corinthians. To the Jews, Christ is a stumbling block, right? So Jesus' great treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge remains hidden from their sight. To the Greeks, the the cross of Christ is foolishness or nonsense, stupidity even. To the one who seeks Christ looking for power, demanding signs, Damascus Road experiences, they stumble at the cross because with their eyes they behold a Savior who is utterly weak and shameful, nailed to a cross. And they can't get past that because the Savior is supposed to be powerful. He's supposed to do things in our lives. He's supposed to move mountains. And they can't get past the fact that he was crucified on a cross. To the one who seeks Christ by his own knowledge or his intellect, his reason, his wisdom, his own understanding, he stumbles at the cross because the whole thing smacks of nonsense and fairy tales. And I'll just throw out my Tolkien and Lewis reference. And amen, the cross of Christ is the truth behind all fairy tales. And it is the real myth. That's what Tolkien and Lewis said. Um, You see, the wisdom and knowledge found in Christ are hidden to the natural man or I should say the unnatural fallen man, they're hidden to the natural man because they only look at the cross with contempt. And they literally, they do like the thief on the cross. They, they spit at the Christ and they say these words. They say, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Not realizing that Jesus really was the Christ. So the answer to the first question is, yes, I am the Christ. And he really is saving all of us. He's literally doing the two things that the thief is mocking him over on his right side. 
He's saving all of us on the cross. You see, in Christianity, saving or salvation or life is often hidden in dying. Resurrection comes after crucifixion. But on the other side of Christ, there was another one. There was another thief who didn't demand wisdom. He didn't demand, tell me, are you not the Christ? And he didn't demand a sign of power. He didn't say, save yourself and us. There was another one who gazed at the crucified Christ and he saw his glory and he saw his power and he saw his wisdom for what they really are. He rebuked the other saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The treasures of Christ are hidden by his cross and his flesh. And only the one who has Christ revealed to him from the Father can receive this. Behold the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ and him crucified. So now we're, we're coming down the mountain. Another response for the audience. And this is uh, two with satisfaction at core Christ. Second point. We must fight false teaching with satisfaction in Christ. We must fight false teaching with satisfaction in Christ. And this is verse 4. Um, in verse 4 he says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. This may be the second most important part of the sermon. The first part, obviously, about Christ, the mystery of God. But the second part is this, that no one may delude you with pl- plausible arguments. Paul says, I say this. What is the this referring to? Well, it's referring directly back to what we just talked about, Jesus. It's referring to verse uh, 2b and 3, the, the climax of this passage. But it's also referring to the entire letter. Um, Douglas Moo says it this way. The high Christology of chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, has then a direct practical purpose to keep believers from being deceived by fine-sounding arguments. So the this of verse 4 is properly talking about, I have said all of these things in Colossians for this reason, that you might not be deluded away from Jesus Christ by fine-sounding arguments. So what exactly are these plausible arguments? Uh, G.K. Beale cites some Greek writings outside of the Bible, um, particularly a philosopher named Philo. Uh, the reason is, is this is the only place in the New Testament that this word appears. So we have no other place that this word, plausible arguments, appears. Uh, Philo says this, It is affirming untrue things by trying to make them appear true or wrongly believing them to be true. So you're essentially trying to make something sound true by tricking people into think, but it's really not true. Or you believe it's true, it's really not true, and you're, you're trying to convince people. Uh, another way of saying this is like a lawyer who is trying to persuade the audience toward an unjust verdict, right? He knows that his client's guilty, but he tries to persuade us to an unjust verdict. Um, Pastor John has already mentioned some elements of the false teaching going around in Colossians. And Pastor David, in, in his sermon on Colossians 2, 16 through 19, will likely cover some more of the details of the arguments. But I just want to focus in on what Paul means here, what he's wanting us to do here. Paul is giving us a simple principle to avoid being deluded by false arguments. 
whether they're blogs, podcasts, people, books, or demons. His principle is this. Do you want to not be deluded away from Christ? Be satisfied with Christ, and you will not be satisfied with anything else. Be satisfied with Christ, and you will not be satisfied with anything else. When our hearts are not satisfied in Christ, they are easily satisfied by other things and teachings that are not found in Christ. When we are not satisfied in Christ of the Christ hymn and the Christ of verses 2 through 3, namely the fountain of all wisdom, when we are not satisfied in Christ, we open ourselves up and we expose ourselves to false teaching. We're more prone to believe false teaching when we're not satisfied in Christ. So how do you fight false teaching in your life and lies in your life? Seek to satisfy and drink deeply of Jesus Christ found here in the Gospels, found here in the letters of the, the New Testament. Now this requires some heart. Seek to drink deeply of Christ. Now this requires some heart searching. Um, so I'm just going to give a few like just basic principles. If you look at your heart and you find your, yourself more like the first criminal, right? You're hardened toward Christ. If you find yourself hardened towards Christ, if, if your devotions with God and your communing with him in prayer is little to non-existent, if your uh, satisfaction in Christ is low, if this is the case, Paul is literally telling you that you are in danger of being deluded the plausible arguments. Paul's also telling you to look again at the beauty and the majesty that's found in Jesus Christ. He's telling you. He's saying, turn to your brothers and sisters and just say, you know what, I'm burnt out today. Or um, I'm not satisfied. My devotions to Christ are lackluster. Um, I don't feel like praying. Uh, I yelled at my kids yesterday. Or what, whatever it is. Um, I'm not reading the word practically at all. I'm not praying. Turn to your brothers and sisters and just say that. And say, you know what? Hey, you, Bob, can you call me twice a week and read the Bible and pray with me? Can you hold me accountable to these things? Use the church. Don't sit in your dissatisfaction and drift from Christ and from Christ's people until it's too late. Don't make life-altering decisions in the midst of dissatisfaction in Christ. It's a really bad idea. If your heart is hard in this season, reach out for help from others who you see satisfaction in Christ in. Reach out to them and just say, hey, I'm dissatisfied right now. Help me out. So some, uh, the other kind of little caveat here is uh, some are satisfied in Christ, but they're satisfied in another Christ. It's not the Christ of the Bible. And so that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about who dismantle uh, the holiness of Christ. They put some of his hard commands to the side because they don't bode well with modern day culture and sensitivities. They put the holiness of Christ to the side. And he's definitely not talking about people who put certain theological um, statements about Christ aside, like Jehovah Witnesses, right? We don't believe Jesus is God. That's not the same Jesus that you're believing in then. Uh, so he's not talking about people who are satisfied in that kind of Christ. He's talking about people who are satisfied in the Christ uh, as portrayed in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. Uh, so again, Paul beckons us to look at the treasure of Christ so that we can fight the tastiness of the lies of Satan. Now there is a positive here. Christ and the knowledge of Christ is absolutely sufficient to keep you from being deluded by false teaching. That's the positive. He's literally saying, Jesus 
alone is sufficient to keep you from being deluded by false arguments, false teaching, false beliefs, false emotions. Calvin says it this way, It is the key that can close the door against all base errors. Those are out of danger who remain in Christ. So again, fight false teaching with satisfaction with Christ. Take Psalm 119, use the language of the psalm, and worship Lord. Seek to delight yourself in Jesus. Our last one, the bottom of the mountain, comes from verse 5. Rejoice with the church in spirit. So our final verse, uh, it, it focuses um, on this Paul's like relationship with the Colossians, and he writes this. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul turns away from verse 4 now to assure us that he doesn't believe the Colossians are falling for the, the you know, plausible arguments. He's seeing good order and firmness of faith when he looks at the Colossians. So let's look at good order and firmness. Both of these words are used in military contexts. And so Doug Moo tells us this, that it's like Paul is a general inspecting his troops, rejoicing to see that they're disciplined and they're strong. Uh, G.K. Beale tells us this, good order has to refer to, why does he say this? He says, because it's compared and contrasted to verse 4's plausible arguments. So you have plausible arguments in verse 4, and then you have good order in verse 5. Contrasting phrases. Uh, what exactly does Paul mean here by the, the phrase, I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit? It's it, is it like the English expression, you know, when like someone asks us to go, uh, I don't know, hey, you want to meet us at the coffee shop? We'll play some board games. And you're like, no, brother, but I'll be there in spirit, right? Is it that? Yeah, yes, there is some of that. It is like that, but that's kind of like our way of copping out. Um, but that's not all that Paul means here. Um, he's present in a couple ways. He's present through the letter he just wrote, because it's literally from Paul. They're hearing his words, and he's represented by his letter that he wrote. But more so, he's present with them in Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. Uh, G.K. Beale says it this way, Because Paul and the Colossians are united with Christ, they are present with each other via the mediation and prayer of Christ. Or another way, Ephesians says it this way, we're all seated with him in heavenly places. When we pray, we pray our Father, right? Because we're in Jesus Christ. The Father of Jesus becomes our Father. But more so, everyone who's in Jesus Christ is now brothers and sisters, a family, and they're brought together in one place, the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, We could just say, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, Spiritual love knows that the most direct way to others is always through prayer in Christ. Always in prayer in Christ. So whether we're miles away or in the same room, via Christ, we are together. We are united. We have access to Christ and we have access to one another because of our union with Jesus Christ. We can pray and bring people before the throne of God. So finally, notice that this street, this uh, I'm with you in spirit street, is a two-way street. Paul is with them in spirit, and therefore they are with him. Hence he writes, I'm there in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ Jesus. He's able to see their fruitfulness 
through the reports and through his prayers. Uh, say it this way. When is Paul's response? Uh, what is Paul's response then? Knowing this, right? What's his response? After talking to the Colossians, after seeing their faith, after seeing their good order, what does he say he does? Rejoicing. Rejoice. So as we've surveyed the majesty of Christ in this text, let us now turn to muster up the language of adoration as we worship God in song and in the Lord's Supper. Let's be reminded that whether our heart or our mind is in a good frame or a bad frame, God has our righteousness ever before him, namely Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand. Or as Colossians 3 says, our life is hidden with Christ in God. So let us adore him as we dwell on that truth that Jesus uh, is our righteousness in heaven. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for revealing yourself in Jesus Christ. We love you. Give us strength as we seek to struggle for the church, as we seek to encourage and warn one another, as we seek to bring each other before you in prayer. And Lord, as we seek to see you and to delight and satisfy ourselves in your Son, I pray that you would just uh, grow us. Um, Lord, convict us of sin wherever it might lie. And if we are dissatisfied, Lord, please just give us the, the courage and the boldness to find someone in a church to hold each other accountable, to seek to satisfy one another in Christ. Protect us from false teaching, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.